trade and paper. A thing of the past? What about paperless trade? Why do we need it? And what does it have to do with the environment? Today we are looking into trade and its relation to paper. We discuss how the sustainable paperless future looks like. I'm Julia Hernig, assistant professor at Erasmus School of Law. And today we ask, what is wrong with maritime trade? The sustainable law talk right from the center of trade, Rotterdam. Welcome to the first episode of this podcast where we try to tackle patterns of trade which developed over centuries and discuss potential solutions. For our first episode, I'm more than happy to welcome Dr. David Seif. Welcome. Hi, Julia. Thank you for having me here. For our audience, uh, a brief introduction. So Dr. David Seif is a research associate at the Interdisciplinary Center for Law of the Information Society at the University of Oldenburg in Germany. There he deals with the legal issues of digitalization, especially in the field of international trade and trade finance. Dr. Seif is an internationally recognized expert in the field and advises, among others, the International Chamber of Commerce and other organizations in this field. His PhD project on the electronic bill of lading forms the basis for the haptic research project, which deals with the digitalization of commodity documents using blockchain. Yeah, thank you, Julia, for the warm welcome. And thanks once again for having me here. The facts. David, what belongs to trade and what is your understanding of trade? Well, I would say trade is everything and without trade, there is nothing. Actually, the whole basis of our globalized world relies on the exchange of goods from one place to another. And that is exactly trade. But I think that trade is way more than just a pure transport of goods from A to B. It's more than that because you have all these different parties involved. Uh, you have this international contract of sales for the legal community here where two parties agree on the exchange of goods in uh, exchange with money. But on the other hand, you need this transportation companies that do organize uh, uh, the transport of the goods themselves. But besides that, you also need insurance companies uh, to mitigate the risks of the transport itself and banks that mitigate the trade risk itself because you probably don't know your, your buyer or your seller and you probably won't give the money right away without having the money in the first place. So you might use a bank to finance this process. And besides that, it's also the public authorities involved because in some goods, for some goods you need the allowance for export or for import the goods. So what about taxes? What about dangerous goods and all these things? So, you see, trade is more or less everything <laughs> that we have in a modern society. <laughs> well, sounds really, really complex. If I order a, a small T-shirt from anywhere, I didn't expect this, maybe. Um, well, yeah, and this concept of trade you described is traditionally based on paper. And, um, well, when we talk about paper, about what kind of papers are we talking Yeah, that might sound funny to our audience here, but you're absolutely right. This whole process heavily relies on paper. And not only one document, but I think it's up to 30 different kinds of documents that are used to document the trade, document the underlying contracts of sale, of transport, and so on and so on, but also document the goods that are being exchanged. So 
you could say that every sector involved here has its own document and they're still being used on paper. So for example, we have the contract of sales, which could be in writing, but must not really be in writing. That depends on your parties. But we also have the, the um, documents describing the quality of the goods, uh, for example, as a way bill or seaway bill. Um, or we have dangerous goods declarations, or we have certificates of origin, um, which um, give proof of the origin, which is then necessar necessary for the tax relation. relation. But also we have um, documents that are used as collateral in international trade finance, especially the bill of lading. Uh, I'm sorry that I'm talking about the bill of lading <laughs> all the time, but my PhD thesis I conducted on uh, the electronic bill of lading and its legal issues. Um, so yeah, as you can see, many documents involved uh, with many different functions in this international trade. And they're all still be printed. Yeah, thank, thank you. I mean, uh, well, the bill of lading is complex <laughs> and uh, especially our uh, maritime and transport law and commercial law and international trade law students will learn shortly about it, how complex it can be. But indeed, it's fascinating the different kinds of paper and, well, do the sectors communicate with each other? Do they like at least align the different kind of papers? Uh, well, is there, like, well they do approach? communicate <laughs> with each other because they um, need each other for the production of these documents. Um, the merchants uh, cannot produce the bill of lading themselves. They need the transportation companies to issue a bill of lading. Um, and of course they need the, the chambers of commerce um, that, that issue the certificates of origin. They need the dangerous goods declaration that is probably issued by a public authority. But this does not mean that there is a standardization process going on. So the very funny thing is that you have all these different documents, but they're all having the same information in, incorporated. So you have the bill of lading, which gives you um, the exporting and importing party, the consignee, the transportation uh, company, the, um, yeah, the description of the goods themselves, and uh, you have the same uh, information in the uh, commercial invoice or in the commercial contract or maybe in the dangerous goods declaration. It says it, it gives you exact the same information and it has to be the same information because it's the same trade process. But I found this very funny because in the end you have 35 documents all more or less containing the same data but still being printed out all themselves. What a waste of paper, <laughs> yes. an entire tree, I can imagine. <laughs> so, but uh, what about, I mean, if you, if you have so much paper and so many documents, um, what does it mean? Ca can't it be like go lost easily? And is, isn't there like a huge risk that not all the documents make, make it to the end? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's an interesting question to answer because at the very first glimpse you would say that there is a high risk of losing one of these documents and not being able to further pro process the trade. Um, because the, you have the strict uh, document liability from the arising from the, the trade finance process itself, where it basically says if you don't have the right set of documents, having the right set of information contained therein, then there will be no payment of money in the end. 
But in reality, the risk of losing such documents is, is way smaller because we are dealing with these documents for hundreds of years. People are, are, are trained very well and used how to treat the documents. Um, so I would say there is not that much of a risk to lose this paper. But if we look closer and, for example, take a look what happened during the COVID-19 early phase in last year, we could see that some of the major trade routes more or less stopped. They did not stop 100%, but we had some issues there because, for example, in India and Pakistan, um, the um, document carriers were not allowed to, to do the delivery of documents because the authorities were afraid that there is a risk of contagion uh, while passing over the documents. Um, and without the documents being passed over, we could not process uh, the goods uh, any further. Mm, so that was a very crucial issue that um, we had to deal with last year. Oh uh, yeah, indeed. And uh, well, that, that is a huge problem. Coming to the next huge <laughs> problem, <laughs> basically. Uh, well, we, we talked about the tree for this uh, mass of paper. How expensive is paper-based trade? And what does it cost the environment? Yeah, you already mentioned it. Is it, it costs us twice. It costs us, or thrice even. It costs us money, time and emissions. Because, I mean, it, costing time that is, is obvious. If you imagine that these data must be, uh, these uh, not data, <laughs> if it would be data, it would be fine. But we do have to uh, transport paper from one place to another, because, for example, the Bill of uh, Lading grants only the consignee uh, the rights to uh, claim delivery at the port of delivery. So we need to transport paper via airplane to uh, get the documents there that you can could claim delivery. Um, so I think at this process you can see how how many issues we have with the um, with the current process. So of course it's not only cutting down trees for documents. I would say this is this is of course an issue, but it's not the major issue. I would say that the major issue that we is that we also have to transport these documents um, via airplanes or or things like this. And by this um, have a high carbon footprint and uh, emissions um, related to that. And in the end, the process costs time and time in the end is money in international trade. Well, this is a delicate, uh, a delicate aspect. I think um, most of the uh, audience didn't uh, know this. And um, yeah, so what is the way forward? Are there already attempts to, um, to, to go digital? Well, you mentioned your project. Yeah, there are many. There were many attempts, and our project is definitely not the first project, and definitely not the last project that will deal on the topic paperless trade. I would say, since the invention of the personal computer, uh, people are trying to overcome paper. Um, they used and they used to, had different ideas to overcome paper. <laughs> the first idea was to just don't use any documents at all, and for example, um, waive the usage of bills of lading um, and replace them with uh, waybills that are not being printed out anymore. But if you do this, you lose the security that you would have if you had such a document of title. Your students probably will learn what that means later on. 
um, but um, yeah, you lose the risk of having such uh, a document as collateral just by not using it anymore. So people thought, well, um, if we, if the parties of an international trade know each other, we probably don't need this high security because I know my partner overseas will pay me the money, and he knows that I will pay uh, that I will deliver on time. Um, but as I said, you you then lose some some um, some security in this process. And then and lawyers love uh, love trust. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think this is something that we could add to the definition of trade. What is trade or what does trade rely on its trust? Because you do only you only have business going on with people and companies that you trust. Definitely. Yeah. That was the first approach. So, so don't use any documents of all at all. The second um, attempt was to digitize these documents using centralized architecture, like centralized server architecture, because this was the technology that was in place like 20, 30 years ago at the time when United Nations Com uh, Commission for International Trade Law and others introduced electronic signatures, um, for example. Um, so there the simple idea was, well, these documents contain data. Why don't we store that data on a single server farm and all people rely that these data is correct and these uh, data does um, represent the, the formal document that we would have in a paper-based world. Um, yeah, and the third approach, rather new approach, I would say in the last six, five or six years, we tried to use decentralized uh, uh, software, de decentralized ledger technology, also known as blockchain for our community here to not use only one server, but many servers located all over the world um, to store the data of these documents. Yeah. Okay, and uh, can we go paperless? What would you prefer? Which option? Oh, we can definitely. We, we can go paperless and we will go paperless. Um, I would prefer decentralized uh, technology, but I have a small bias, I have to say here, <laughs> because the project Haptic I'm, I'm heading at the University of Oldenburg um, is working on a decentralized architecture for digitizing bills of lading. But in the end, we will, we will go paperless and uh, if it will be de decentralized te technology or not, I don't know, but go, di go digital, I can say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. The legal issues. So to understand the complexity of the topic, it is important to have a look at the origin of uh, paperless trade. That's at least my perception. So what is the origin of paper-based trade and why did they use paper? Yeah, of course, they could not use, uh, in the ancient times, they could not use stone slabs or something like this because it would obviously would have been too impractical. But why did they choose paper? Yeah, I'm, as far as I know, this uh, the usage of paper to document international trade uh, derives from the old Venice, so the Venice merchants, um, figured out a way of not accompanying their cargo. So before they, they used documents such as early stages of the bill of lading, they uh, traveled with the goods. 
So everywhere where the goods were, the merchants were. But they figured out this is rather impractical. And they, they like to stay at home and save in Venice. Um, so they granted the captains of a ship the power to issue documents, which then document um, the actual conditions of the goods and to whom they have been um, sent and um, the quantity they have been loaded to the ship. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And this was actually the the option they have chosen for, for keeping track. Yeah. And did it work or were there like errors legally? Well, <laughs> what should I say? Um, as we were using these documents in modern times as well, <laughs> I would say it, it quite worked. Uh, um, of course, there were errors and there is a nice book. Uh, I think it is called maritime fraud or shipping fraud where one um, wrote down all the possible ways to yeah misbehave in this process uh, but in the end it worked out pretty well well we make uh, sure that our students have uh, the reference yeah uh, after the recording then you can look it up feel free to to ask questions on this uh, yeah, so why do we need paper from a legal perspective? Uh, and what is, what is the function of this paper-based document? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I would use the bill of lading as, as an example because it is then quite obvious why we need paper. The bill of lading has many different functions uh, from a legal point of view. It does not only give you evidence about the conditions of the, of the goods or evidence for the uh, underlying contract of carriage, but it is also a collateral or a security uh, or wertpapier or however you want to call it. So the bill of lading itself represents the cargo that is, which is, is issued um, yeah, or which uh, is included into the bill of lading. That means if you are the righteous holder of the bill of lading, it is from a legal point of view the same as you would, as you would holding the cargo in your hands. So if you, if you would have possession on the goods. And the jurisdictions here in Europe, but I would say also worldwide, require for these kind of um, collaterals uh, a written form. So the requirement of the wet ink signature. Um, and this was the main reason why we needed paper, because there was no way other than uh, um, writing down your signature to prove that you were the righteous holder or the, the righteous issuer of such a document. Um, when, when trade um, became yeah, faster, um, we didn't require or it wasn't required to have this, this um, handwritten signature, but we could also use a facsimile signature or a stamp, but it was still required that you issue a document, a paper document. But isn't there, I mean, if you have a long distance transport and you don't know the merchant at the other end, uh, isn't there the risk that the uh, signing can be forged, that the document can be forged? How can you, like, check this? How, how did it work and how does it work today? Well, for example, the Bill of Lading is issued in um, three different pieces or uh, three copies which all have the same information. So you know if one of these copies has different information then probably this one is forged or the other ones have been altered uh, uh, illegal. But in the end, um, actually there is, no, there, there is no real security behind that because you, you simply trust in the end that uh, the signature that it is uh, shown on the document belongs to the person 
um, which says it has uh, issued the document. Yeah, okay. And uh, this was this was safe enough. Well, this is quite quite interesting. Um, and uh, what is the legal and or the regulatory environment here? Do you see room for improvement? Is the old good enough? Is it too rigid? What would you think? Yeah, so we have a more or less internationally harmonized legal environment, for example, um, bills of lading. Uh, we have the Hague and Hague-Visby rules that are more or less used uh, all over the world, which give you the minimum requirements of, um, of what has to be in a bill of lading, um, how it must be issued, and so on. Um, and it's a very, I would say it's a very well environment for the paper process itself. But when it then comes to overcome the paper as a carry of information um, in the modern world, and I would say the law is very rigid and we have many different approaches uh, throughout the ages how to overcome uh, this uh, legal requirement of a paper to be issued. Um, one is very interesting because it started in Rotterdam. We have uh, the Rotterdam rules approach, um, um, which um, I would say first in firstly introduced this, this um, way to overcome paper by using functional equi equivalence as basic principle for digital trade. Yeah, well, very interesting. Uh, maybe, maybe before we go into uh, the paperless uh, innovations, could you maybe uh, explain to our audience? Well, the the students will learn about this. What the Rotterdam rules are? What is what are the Hague Wispy rules? Uh, are they like standards and conditions or? What what is the role of this? Yeah, the Hague uh, Hague rules and Hague Visby rules um, are international um, international contract uh, contract of international law, where all the signing countries agree to harmonize their law uh, or align it to the Hague um, or Hague Visby rules, and they govern all regions of maritime trade, liability, documents, and so on and so on, uh, and then harmonizing um, every rule. So you uh, have more or less the same rules applying in Germany that you would have in the Netherlands or in the UK, because it's all harmonized uh, to the UK law. The Rotterdam law then was an attempt to modernize this international contract uh, by adding new rules for the liability of the shipper, or liability of the carrier, uh, and so on and so on. Yeah, it was also, well, this is also my area of interest, it was also an expansion to multimodal uh, transport, which is a totally different uh, but equally uh, difficult topic for harmonization. Yes, yeah, well, you, start, uh, you said that it started in Rotterdam, uh, and it started with the Rotterdam rules. Um, but what started? What, what are the new approaches? Yeah, as I said, the new approach was because the, Rotter the, the founders of the Rotterdam rules were aware that this whole paper-based process is more or less an anachronism. And they thought about, uh, about how to overcome paper um, uh, to modernize international trade. And of course, digitization was key there. And so they figured out a way of how to legally represent the functions of the former paper in a digital world. And what were the requirements? What were the what was the the main focus of their regulation? Was it just evident uh, evidentiary 
body? Was it just um, how to prove? Was it forged, forged mm. uh, documents? Yeah, the, uh, the main principle is functional equivalence. That, that means if this electronic record, which is the actual wording from the Rotterdam rules, is able to recreate the former functions of the paper-based documents or paper-based bill of lading, then it is deemed legally equivalent um, to the paper-based document. So, so and uh, what do you think? Which, which country made the hugest... Uh, progress and where do you expect uh, the greatest success? <laughs> yeah, I, well, let's let's to, let's put it other way around. The first ones um, introducing the Rotterdam Rules attempt of digitizing uh, documents of trade was Germany in 2013. Because in Germany, we in 2011 it started or 2012, it started to reform the whole maritime trade law. Because there were old rules not being used, very complicated law. And during this reform, they also copied, really, I, I, you could say copy, the Rotterdam Rules attempt on functional equivalence towards uh, documents of trade since 2013. Um, parallel to it, also Spain introduced quite similar rules, also copying the Rotterdam Rules attempt. Um, but as the Spanish law is not as important uh, in international trade as German law or UK law, even more. Yeah, that's mm. what I wanted to say. What about UK law then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the situation in UK is, is quite complex. Um, um, and the law commission actually this year started uh, on, a, on a draft law to introduce uh, paperless trade um, to UK law because... Um, right now, the issuance of electronic bills of uh, lading is not allowed under uh, the Carriage of Goods by Sea Act. So it's still a long way f uh, to towards the the harmonization and towards function equivalent also in the um, dominating uh, jurisdiction. When we w when we talk about uh, the the legal status quo, do you think there is a way forward? I mean, it's also part of the truth that Germany was not one of the of the fastest when it came to to the e-consignment bill, for instance. Will there be uh, digitalization all over in trade? Yes, definitely. Um, the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, uh, also known as ANSITRAL, uh, has issued a model law on electronic transferable records. Um, just for the students, a model law is, is something that could, that could be used as guidance for the national legislator of how you could implement certain regulations into your national law. And as I said, the Anstitral has issued um, something like this on electronic transferable records, meaning electronic documents of title or electronic documents of trade. Um, and these are being copied or implemented into national law. And that is quite in, uh, interesting. And uh, because if we look, for example, to Singapore, Singapore has implemented this model law into national law. And... As I said, the UK Law Commission is working on a, on a draft for electronic documents of trade and they also try to copy at least the crucial parts of this model law into their national law. Very, very interesting. So there is definitely uh, 
something to discuss and we will do this in our third part. Thank you very much. The Outlook So all the approaches and attempts seem so promising, at least to me as a, well, lay person. Um, what, what do you think? Um, do we stand a good chance? Oh yes, definitely. Things are definitely speeding up, not only because of the mentioned unsuitable model law, um, but also, um, for example, in the EU, things are speeding up um, as the um, European Union has issued the Electronic Freight Transport Information Regulation, um, which deals with the information exchange between transport companies and public authorities uh, and make the electronic information exchange between those two parties mandatory, I think, uh, at the beginning of 2024. Um, so things are definitely speeding up. Um, and if we have this um, legal, legal obligation to have digital information exchanged between companies and public authorities, why not go fully digital in this case? Yeah, true. So, but in, well, coming back to, to the environmental issue, um, maybe, maybe our audience already heard about uh, the, the problem that uh, servers that mined the block of blockchains caused a tremendous carbon emission. So do we then have the choice between trees <laughs> and the carbon emission of, uh, of the uh, mining process? So is this really a pro progressive way forward? Yeah, that's definitely a crucial topic that we have to keep in mind. Um, but we have also to keep in mind that um, banks and insurance companies, by using their massive um, calculation power, software farms, server farms, do uh, emit um, or have a high carbon footprint because of their uh, whole um, in IT infrastructure they are maintaining. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Um, also, a blockchain um, could be <laughs> very inefficient or, uh, when it comes to the emissions. Um, but this depends on what blockchain technology we are using. Um, you mentioned the proof-of-work mechanism. And I think this is where um, this uh, whole um, high-emission topic from blockchains arises from. Um, for the audience, uh, I think the most well-known blockchain application, the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, relies on that mechanism. And proof Can of you explain this mechanism maybe for the, for the audience that we, would, that we know more about yeah. this proof-of-work concept? Yeah. As it goes by the name, proof-of-work means that, all the <laughs> that you have to prove work to participate in the network or to mm, participate in the consensus mechanism of the blockchain. Um, and the work that you have to conduct, well, not you as a person have to conduct, but your servers have to uh, uh, conduct, is you have to actually solve a riddle, a very complicated mathematic or cryptographic riddle, where you have to find uh, a different solution to a problem. And this solution can not only uh, uh, can't be found um, just by doing um, logical um, calculations, but by simple brute force, so by just trying what is the right answer to the question being posed. And all the servers uh, participating in one uh, blockchain network have to solve this problem at the same time by using simple brute force. And this is very inefficient and costs high emissions. But it is meant to be inefficient because you wanted um, the riddle to be as complicated as possible. 
because if you want to alter the blockchain network, you somehow have to redo this riddle. And if it's complicated, then it's hard to redo the riddle. That is ah, the background. Okay, so of it. it's kind of a kind of a trust mechanism that it's uh, protected. That the entire blockchain is in in a way protected. Definitely. Ah, yeah. Well. Um, but it also sounds like a huge cooperation. And when we talk about uh, cooperation, um, which stakeholders are missing? Who are the stakeholders? And are they already on board? Or do they have to get on board? What does it take to convince them? I think communi communication is key here. Uh, we need all the different stakeholders, uh, not only of the trade sector itself, as I mentioned before, the merchants, the transportation companies, the banks and insurances, but we need even more cooperation going on when it comes to the digitization of it documents. We also need the legal departments involved, because as we are the lawyers, we are the one giving um, the legal uh, background um, what legal functionalities must be reproduced by the software. And as we're talking about software, we need people who develop the software. So we also need IT expertise in here. And communication is key between all these three sectors. It's a very interdisciplinary thing for us to do. Yeah, true, definitely. Um, but everything, so all the aspects, this sounds so far away from me, from also maybe uh, some of our students. Uh, does this topic really concern me as an individual? Um, what do you think? Yes, 100%. Every, everything that we have, every, every clothes that we wear, our computers, our laptops, our phones are subject to international trade. So ev everything that you order on the internet is, is subject to this trade process. And I can only say think twice before ordering. Think um, what you cause with your order process um, because every order process then triggers this whole uh, paper being produced and so on and so on. That's true. I mean, when I consider the, the pandemic really changed our behavior and to some extent when I now think of paying with by cash or in, in yeah or by card we we definitely changed we had to change and well maybe we can change for uh, for ordering online as well not uh, or considering and thinking about the potential returns the potential transport costs the emissions and especially also all the papers and documents that uh, go around. But um, can I, as an individual, request digital documentation? For instance, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, that I travel by train and I have my app ticket. Um, but what if I don't want to give away my data? Do I then stick with the paper? Yeah, that's, that's the hardest question. What about your data? And you're absolutely right. Um, everything has a price and also paperless trade could could go along with a high price of um, undisclosing your data to companies. You probably don't want them to have the data. But this is also where the general data protection regulation comes into place where you need also 
uh, when it comes to developing such software, um, need um, in high communication standards between lawyers and data protection specialists to make sure that this is not the case in the end. Um, yeah, but I think you don't, at the moment you don't have to be afraid of giving away your data to your uh, train service company. Um, no, that's true. <laughs> when you when you consider that you're maybe uh, using Facebook or Instagram or something else. That is true. I was also thinking about my grandma. She usually orders like tickets uh, at the at the ticket machine, of course, or in in front of uh, yeah from from a from a real person and not through an app. Do we get like a trade of two paces, uh, or can we adapt? every one of us. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned your grandparents because I was visiting my grandpa <laughs> on the weekend and we had actually this discussion going on of how complicated it is for him to use the app to order train tickets. Um, and I think by this we, we will have two paces and we have and there will be a time when there's paper and digital trade um, parallel to each other. But uh, eventually this will 100% switch to uh, fully digital world. Yeah, That's true. And I can imagine, I mean, a company, a modern company is not uh, one of my grandparents and they can adapt easily. Uh, it's just a matter of pressure, maybe. Yeah, but you have to keep that in mind. Also in companies, uh, um, there are some companies uh, more, more keen to digital or even more open for digitization and the others are aren't but we have to um, yeah we have to interact with both of them and we need the expertise of these people still working with the paper because they know how the process work and to be successful in the digital world we have to understand how the analog world works true and there it comes into play that it must be functional equivalent yes so maybe one qu a closing question. The majority of our audience are master students. Uh, what can the single law master student do? Which idea can they take home and could they use as a starting point for innovative discussions? Yeah, I think there's one thing I could, I could recommend doing. I would say keep asking yourself the question whether the formal requirements you learned for certain documents or certain contracts are still real. So are there real legal um, requirements to, to go with a um, written uh, signature or not? Or do we ha already have a replacement of these uh, specific formal requirements? Because during my research, I learned that the law is far more open for digitization than it felt on the first place. Um, and there were many um, obstacles when it comes to the written form that weren't actually there. True, so we can be enabler, even as lawyers. Uh, we have to be the enabler, It's because many people rely on us. Or no, I would say all people rely on us. They say, well, it's the law that says so, and if our legal department doesn't allow us to do it, then, then we cannot do it. But that's, so we have to be the enabler here, yeah. Great, great, great. So thank you very much, David, for this interesting talk, and I hope you enjoyed it, and yeah, stay tuned and be curious. Yeah, thank you, Julia, for having me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>